High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. You must Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment in our ongoing series, Fake News, Fact-Checking Hollywood Babylon. The great films of the silent years This isn't news. This is totally unfounded gossip. It's a long way from Hollywood. Criticized for dealing too frankly with such themes as sex and nudity. Hollywood. Babylon. Last week, we mentioned Mabel Normand in the context of the William Desmond Taylor murder scandal, which began in the middle of the trials of Mabel's frequent co-star, Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle, and coincided with a career slowdown for Mabel. Though she appeared in over 200 films in her career, only seven of them came after 1922, four of which were short films. 
what was really going on with her? Here's Kenneth Anger's version. Mabel Norman, whose antic clowning for Max Sennett gained her fans by the millions, owed her effervescence, at least in part, to cocaine and company. Mabel's monthly expenditure for cokey was in the neighborhood of $2,000, blackmail included. On one occasion, Taylor had confronted a blackmailer who was hounding Miss Norman, and in the ensuing sidewalk fisticuffs, knocked him flat. When she became involved in the dope angle of the Taylor case, it was Norman's turn to retire from the screen. Susanna, the Senate feature she had just completed, was withdrawn after it had been boycotted. The epitaph to her career was an editorial in Good Housekeeping, suggesting Mabel was too adulterated for family consumption. The delightful comedian of so many Keystone comedies was no longer an apple in the eye of her former fans. Anger doesn't seem all that interested in Mabel Normand. And yet, in his brief assessment of her connection to William Desmond Taylor, he manages to skew the truth quite a bit. As we'll see, Norman's involvement in the Taylor case did not firmly end her career. Her decline in Hollywood and in life is a much more complicated story, as is the question of whether or not she was the cocaine addict that Anger and many historians have claimed her to be. Join us, won't you? For part five of Fact-Checking Hollywood Babylon, Mabel Normand. Mabel Normand frequently embellished or invented alternate childhoods for herself, as many of the first wave of Hollywood stars did. She was actually born in 1892 to an Irish family on Staten Island. Sometimes Mabel said she grew up on a plantation in Atlanta. She allowed gossip columnist Adela Rogers St. John's to describe her as an orphan forced to work in New York sweatshops from the age of eight. Anything was a better story than growing up middle class in a normal family. But her real childhood, set amongst a beach resort for the rich, allowed Mabel to learn to become an expert swimmer and diver, skills that would be surprisingly useful in the movie business. Moon-faced, curvaceous, and petite, when Mabel was 16, she sought out work as an artist's model. Showing up at the studio of Charles Dana Gibson, and offering to be one of his Gibson girls. This was not as scandalous as it might sound. Gibson girls was the colloquial term for the feminine ideal which Gibson put forth in his pen and ink illustrations of young white American women. Gibson girls had tiny waists and substantial curves covered up in Victorian high-necked dresses. They wore their hair piled on top of their heads in soft nests, mimicking in maximum the shape of their bee-stung lips. This is exactly what Mabel Normand looked like in 1908, and so she became an in-demand model for the advertising illustrators of New York. 
For a little bit of extra cash, Mabel would occasionally pose for photographers who produced photo slides for the kind of illustrated songs that Roscoe Arbuckle performed in vaudeville houses around this time. It's definitely possible that Mabel's future on-screen partner sang to her image years before they even met. The modeling life wasn't exactly lucrative for Mabel, and one day when Gibson canceled a portrait sitting at the last minute, Mabel took the advice of a friend and went looking for work at Biograph Studios. There, D.W. Griffith's assistant, Wilfred Lucas, dressed Mabel in a pair of silk tights and velvet bloomers and shot Mabel walking in front of the camera, carrying the train of another woman's gown. Then Mabel was put in a different costume and shot for a different movie. At the end of the day, she went home with $10 in her pocket, a fortune compared to the couple of dollars a day she made in a typical day modeling. She began working as an extra on the Biograph lot, where she caught the eye of Mac Sennett, a 29-year-old comedy director with a mop of Irish red hair. A flirtation began between the pushing 30 Sennett and 16-year-old Mabel, and they soon became a couple. Griffith wasn't interested in Mabel Normand. Of the director's twin poles of feminine ideal, the voluptuous or the spirituelle, Mabel was closer to the voluptuous, but she didn't fit Griffith's tragic conception of that type. Her Gibson girl looks paired with her natural comic tendencies to form a new type, and where so much of Griffith's work with actresses was about trying to recapture either traditional gender roles or embody a fantasy of prelapsarian female purity, Mabel deliberately sought to shake up gender differences. Off-set, she went drinking and dancing, and on-set, she pulled pranks, really dangerous ones, like throwing firecrackers into the film lab. And she volunteered for all kinds of physical stunts, because these were the things that girls were not supposed to do and it excited her to defy these norms. It did not excite Griffith so much. Mabel left Biograph for Vitagraph, a studio in the midst of Brooklyn farmland, where she began appearing in comedies. In 1911, they gave her a starring role in Betty Becomes a Maid, and Mabel would go on to play the Betty character in a number of Vitagraph films. Mabel's Betty was effusively flirtatious, and through her, the actress began to develop a persona as a sexy comic presence, a pretty girl with no vanity or shame. She also appeared in romantic melodramas, and it was these films that gave Mac Sennett ammunition to convince Griffith to hire his girlfriend on full-time at Biograph. Instead of taking advantage of what was unique about Mabel, Griffith would use her the way Griffith used actresses, casting her as an Indian maiden in The Squaw's Love and as a vamp in contrast to the pure Mary Pickford in The Mender of Nets. 
Senate took it upon himself to make the most of Mabel's abilities by creating a film around her called The Diving Girl. Future Senate films would be populated by what were dubbed Senate's Bathing Beauties, who with a few exceptions, were generally virtually anonymous actresses who would stand in a line, smiling in bathing suits. But in The Diving Girl, Mabel actually dove off a real pier in Coney Island, dressed in a full-coverage bathing outfit that revealed her stocking-clad legs from the knees down. A more demure and girlish version of the then-shocking unitard costume professional swimmer Annette Kellerman had popularized the previous decade. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Go for a run, take a nap, read a book, show up for a friend? I think I would use my extra hour to sleep an hour later, or maybe spend more time at the gym. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it. I recently started seeing a new therapist with the explicit goal of trying to figure out what I want in the short term and the long term. I've been in fight-or-flight mode for so long that I've kind of lost track of any goals or ambition that I once had. A therapist can be there for you in times of crisis, even if you have, like me, rather diffuse needs. Either way, a therapist can help you understand the way that you feel and offer strategies for moving forward. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online, so you don't have to sit in traffic to get to your appointment. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com YMRT today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, Dot com slash YMRT. When Mabel arrived in Los Angeles for the first time in 1912, Hollywood, as a center for movie making, was about as new as it could be. In the beginning, Mabel later recalled, we were golden lads and girls, and we made so much money so quickly that we didn't know what to do with it or ourselves, and didn't care. The fact that the film industry turned so many people from working-class backgrounds into nouveau riche would be a key point of attack from would-be reformers during the first age of Hollywood scandal a decade later. The argument would be that the movies had put wealth into the hands of people, like laborers, like immigrants, who weren't bred to know what to do with it, and thus chaos reigned. Of course, this argument was really about the formerly all-powerful fearing having to share the top echelons of society and power with people they had been bred to look down upon. 
This was just one way in which the movement to censor the movies would prove to be classist, sexist, and racist. But we'll get to that in depth later this season. Anyway, by the time Mabel arrived in Los Angeles, Mac Sennett had broken with Griffith and had set up his Keystone Studios in the area of town now known as Silver Lake. And with Mabel as his leading lady on screen and off, Mac began developing his artistic and commercial brand. Sennett's films were almost parodies of Griffith's deathly serious melodramas. Like the Griffith films, Sennett's movies were often built around a chase, although where Griffith focused on the heroic rescue of damsels in distress, Sennett made fools of everyone involved, and often his damsel Mabel was doing the running. Like Griffith's, Sennett's films were fueled by sex and violence, but the comedies played their stories out at a breakneck pace, with Mabel at their center as an up-for-anything action star. In Sennett's films, she rode horses, flew airplanes, and shot guns. She frolicked amidst orange groves and amongst cacti. She tumbled down stairs and over cliffs, and when she got chained to the railroad tracks by a mustache-twirling villain, it was a letdown when a hero came to save her. You expected her to figure out how to get out of bondage by herself. That she did it all, much of it action previously associated only with male figures, usually with a smile on her face and looking irresistibly pretty but sometimes dressed as a boy, caused Mabel to blur what were then extremely rigid lines between expectations for each gender. Though she had an extremely womanly body, she was not highly glamorized or affected. Much of what she did on screen was improvised, in playful collaboration with her director-slash-boyfriend, and the natural enthusiasm and affection that Sennett was able to capture on camera was infectious. These movies, appearing years before the flapper trend took hold as a catch-all for imagery of new womanhood, were inspirational to some girls and women, and infuriating to others. Either way, Mabel was tough to ignore. Many of her Senate films had her name in the title, such as Mabel's Awful Mistake and For the Love of Mabel. She appeared with Charlie Chaplin in a number of his early movies, including what was billed as the first feature-length comedy, Tilly's Punctured Romance. By 1914, she was being called the Queen of the Movies. By then, she had started working with Roscoe Arbuckle. They made 36 films together between 1913 and 1916. One of these films, A Noise from the Deep, features what is probably the first pie-in-the-face gag. It was Mabel who threw the pie at Fatty, in what historian Janine Bassinger would call, quote, a great feminist statement, the revolt of the pie maker. Arbuckle and Norman made a good pair, in part because visually they were the opposite of one another, but each could match the other's physical ability to take pratfalls and perform their own comic stunts. 
As Mabel's fame grew, her romance with Senate carried on, but not always smoothly. The worst predicament of all, Max Senate would later say, is to fall in love with an actress with whom you are in business. Mabel had begun to feel that Mac was using her for the money she could make for him with her very profitable pictures. But at the same time, he let her direct 10 films between 1914 and 1915, all of which she also starred in, and a couple of which co-starred Charlie Chaplin. Chaplin did not make things easy for a man to direct him, but he openly challenged Mabel's competence solely because of her gender. When Chaplin suggested an improvisation instead of what Mabel had originally directed him to do, she responded quickly, We have no time. Do what you're told. That was enough, Chaplin thought. I could not take it. And from such a pretty girl. Chaplin refused to keep on shooting the scene, and he got a talking to from Senate, who ultimately caved to Chaplin's demand that he should be allowed to direct his own movies, just as Mabel directed her own. In 1915, Sennett merged his production company with those of D.W. Griffith and Thomas Ince to form a new studio called Triangle. The Keystone Gang got together that July 4th to celebrate the merger, as well as Max's impending wedding to Mabel. Their relationship had survived all the professional obstacles, although it was volatile and had threatened to implode more than once. On one occasion, Mabel went out dancing with a male actor friend, and Mac sat in the bushes outside of Mabel's apartment, waiting for her to come home. When the actor walked Mabel to her door, Senate came out swinging and connected with the male date. Mabel showed up at the studio the next day with her arm in a sling, which Mac claimed was her way of turning the incident into a larger-than-life joke and was not a sign that he had hit her. And that was the kind of joke that Mabel Norman used to make. Before they could walk down the aisle, Mabel walked in on Mac in bed with another woman, a friend of Mabel's, actress Mae Bush. There are conflicting stories as to what happened next, but most contend Mabel got hurt more than the average cuckolded woman. Many stories claim that some kind of altercation ensued right away and that the other woman threw a vase at Mabel, which cracked her skull. Adela Rogers St. John's, who was a gossip columnist who knew everyone and everything and sometimes exaggerated or fabricated stories for maximum mythic impact, claimed that in Mabel's despair, she jumped off the Santa Monica Pier in a half-hearted attempt at suicide. Lifeguards fished her out of the water alive, but she had hit her head on the way down. In both versions of the story, Mabel received a head injury and ended up in a coma for weeks. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, 
it's taking forever to close the books, getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, you should know these three numbers. 36,025, 36,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs, key performance indicators, in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist, designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free at netsuite.com slash remember. That's netsuite.com slash remember to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash remember. By the time of their aborted wedding, Mabel was the last original Senate star left. Arbuckle and Chaplin had left Senate in order to secure their own creative and financial control. In an effort to make up for his infidelity and his guilt over whatever had happened to Mabel's head, Max set Mabel up with a chance to make future films under her own production shingle. The only film that would result would be called Mickey, and it would be Mabel's most ambitious project yet. Not only was it longer than the great majority of her work thus far, but it would allow her to bring new depths of feeling and drama to her essentially comic young girl character. Though some reports contend she essentially had creative control on Mickey, two men, F. Richard Jones and James Young, are credited as Mickey's directors. Though it was shot in 1916, Mickey didn't get released until 1918. The intervening years allowed Mabel, Mac, and Triangle Pictures to mount a massive publicity campaign, groundbreaking for its tie-in merchandise and the marketing of a song, also called Mickey, which some believe was the first such pop song released in advance of the film it was written to promote. But the two-year gap between production and release, while in the end useful, was not designed. It was the result of Triangle's financial problems and Senate's largely failed maneuvering. By the time Mickey finally made it to theaters, Triangle had gone bankrupt and Normand had left the Senate fold and signed a massive contract with Samuel Goldwyn. Goldwyn bought Mabel when her stock was highest. Mickey became the highest grossing film of 1918, 
easily outdoing features directed by the likes of D.W. Griffith, Cecil B. DeMille, and Charlie Chaplin. The success of Mickey couldn't bring Mac and Mabel back together, romantically or otherwise. But Mabel soon learned she was trading the devil she knew for an even more conflicted situation. Goldwyn had fallen in love with Mabel's image on screen, and he had pursued her, as one friend of Mabel's put it, quote, like a stark raving, crazed, insane, lunatic madman. But many of her films for Goldwyn were big hits. Goldwyn cannily cast Mabel in her usual slapstick romances, while off-screen, he worked to give her a more sophisticated, cosmopolitan image. But it was not an entirely happy partnership. Goldwyn expected Mabel to appear in public as his date, more frequently than she would have liked. And behind his back, she would insult him mercilessly. And at some point during their relationship, Mabel gave birth to a stillborn child in her apartment at 7th and Vermont in what is now the Koreatown district of Los Angeles. Mabel's last films for Goldwyn included a farce called What Happened to Rosa, in which she played a dual role, and Head Over Heels, a Broadway satire in which Mabel played an Italian acrobat. Goldwyn was unsatisfied with the latter film, and he refused to release it. He was also on the verge of losing his studio. According to some reports, Goldwyn had regretted signing Mabel by around 1918, because by then, Mabel's hard-partying, off-screen life was showing on-screen. Other reports claim that one of the reasons Mabel got in over her head with cocaine was because it helped numb her to the reality of being expected to spend romantic weekends with her new studio chief. Mabel herself admitted that when she initially signed the contract, she was told she, quote, didn't look well and was sent to Florida to rest until she was needed for shooting. But this may have been in reference to the serious respiratory problems from which Mabel had suffered most of her life and which were impossible to hide, at least as far back as Mickey. Though many memoirs of people who knew Mabel include observations about her drug use, Mabel's family, in the form of her grand-nephew, Stephen Normand, have furiously disputed these observations. Stephen never met Mabel, but he wrote the family's version of her story, which was published in 1974 in Films and Filming magazine, and a website at themabelnormand.com is devoted to promoting Stephen's version and discrediting most books and the musical play Mac and Mabel, which suggest that Mabel had anything like a drug problem. themabelnormand.com's scholarship is more enthusiastic than rigorous and it relies on blanket disparaging and discrediting a number of the many women who wrote memoirs of the silent era in their older age as has-beens who sexed up their memories for the money. 
But the major thorn in the side of both the website and apparently Stephen Normand is the book Mabel, Hollywood's first I Don't Care Girl by Betty Harper Fussell, which was first published six years after Norman's Films and Filming article. The ex-wife and former uncredited typist and editor of historian Paul Fussell, Harper Fussell's Normand biography includes the story of her often quixotic journey of tracing Norman's story. She was in contact with Stephen Normand during the writing process, and she excerpts from letters he was sent and diaries he kept of his encounters with Julia Benson, who was Mabel's faithful nurse for the last years of her life. At Stephen Norman's request, the nurse made a statement insisting Mabel had not been a drug addict. But the portrait painted of Julia in Harper Fussell's book, via Stephen's writing, makes it seem like, in the mid-1970s when she made this statement, and when she encountered Stephen Normand, 50 years after the events in question, she may have not been entirely mentally well. The MabelNormand.com claims Harper Fussell, quote, did take Stephen's work without permission, and, quote, took some of his research, mixed it with her fantasy, and made a book. I don't know exactly where the truth lies here. What I do know is that I am not willing to dismiss all of the many memoirs written by Mabel's former friends on the sole grounds that their authors were old. In any case, the Normand family's most compelling argument against the rumors of Mabel's drug addiction is that she was simply sick from the tuberculosis that would eventually kill her, and that her sickness left a wear and tear on her face and energy levels that mimicked drug use or withdrawal. It doesn't make a ton of sense that contemporary gossips, plus people who knew Mabel who wrote their stories later, would invent cocaine addiction out of whole cloth. But if Mabel was known as a fun-loving party girl, which she was, and if she began to look progressively ill as she aged, which she did, and if she wasn't open about her illness, which it appears she was not, then perhaps gossip filled the vacuum of information. Perhaps because everyone assumed Mabel was high or drunk all the time, and because she played up the idea that she was an erratic and reckless madcap babe, no one paid much attention to signs that she had serious health problems and had been dealing with them for years. Throughout her career, she suffered from sinus and bronchial trouble and was known to chug what she called goop, an over-the-counter cough syrup containing opium. By the last years of her life, there was no goop that would cure what she had. This episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. From iconic directors to emerging auteurs, there is always something new to discover. With Mubi, each and every film is hand-selected, so you can explore incredible movies streaming anytime, anywhere. This month in U.S. theaters, 
movie is releasing a new documentary from Academy Award winner Kevin McDonald, High and Low, John Galliano. It's charting the rise and fall story of the fashion designer John Galliano, who was one of the most successful names in couture until his career abruptly ended in 2011, featuring conversations with Naomi Campbell, Kate Moss, Penelope Cruz, Charlize Theron, Anna Wintour, and more. High and Low, John Galliano is coming to select theaters across the U.S. on March 8th. For showtimes and tickets, visit movie.com slash high and low. And to stream the best of cinema, you can try movie free for 30 days at movie.com slash YMRT. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash YMRT for a whole month of great cinema for free. Whether because she saw a worst-case scenario version of her own problems reflected in it or not, all of Thomas's death hit Mabel hard. By then, Mabel had developed a friendship with William Desmond Taylor. In the fall of 1920, after Mabel had been contemplating her own health for a couple of wretched months, Taylor gently prodded her into checking into a sanitarium allegedly so that she could kick her addictions, although perhaps just so that she could rest in hopes of recovering from her chronic illness. When she returned, she made two films for Max Sennett, both of them Cinderella stories, Molly O and Susanna. Susanna is the film that Inger incorrectly claims was Norman's last. The Arbuckle scandal began about a year after Mabel completed her convalescence, and it affected her in a number of ways. For one thing, she was heartbroken for her old friend and co-star, who she was sure was innocent of the charges against him. She also saw how the hotel party, the kind of party Mabel herself had attended many times, could become the subject of fascination and condemnation by the nationwide press, and she didn't want to find herself in a similar situation. But she couldn't prevent Arbuckle's troubles from touching her entirely. Immediately, there were announcements that Arbuckle's movies had been boycotted and banned. Because Mabel starred in so many films with Roscoe, this meant that a large number of her own films were pulled from circulation. Meanwhile, in the ongoing conversation about Hollywood's low morals, there were rumors that one drug-addicted starlet had taken a cure for her troubles, but it hadn't stuck. Whether or not Mabel was using drugs or had ever done drugs, rumors about her persisted because she didn't look well. She was dealing with the tuberculosis that would eventually kill her, but she didn't tell the public or the media this. Putting aside the issue of whether or not Mabel did drugs, there is much anecdotal testimony that she did have a tendency to drink too much. An art director who worked with Mabel supposedly said, she was funny, she was gay, until she was drunk. And she was drunk a lot of the time. Mabel's personal staff would allegedly water down her gin bottles in an attempt to keep her from getting too drunk. 
Taylor tried to keep Mabel from crossing the line with champagne. They got into a fight on New Year's Eve, 1921 going into 1922, because Mabel was having too much fun at a party, and Taylor had insisted that they leave. They made up, but a month later, Taylor was dead. I was never in love with Taylor, she told reporters, denying that they had been engaged. But it made a better story to pit Mabel and Mary Miles Minter against one another as romantic rivals. Whether or not they had actually both been involved with Taylor or involved at all in his murder. Anger is correct to say that the aspect of the Taylor scandal that damaged Mabel the most was the dope angle. There were newspaper reports that claimed Taylor had made himself such an antagonist of drug dealers that he had even kicked one of them down a flight of stairs, suggesting that the killing might have been the dope peddler's revenge. Whether true or false, these stories put the idea in the heads of audiences and even Mabel's peers that she was tainted by narcotics, which, though virtually commonplace in Hollywood a year or so earlier, would now be like a target on Mabel's back in a climate of sweaty, post-scandal faux sanitation. Contrary to Anger's report, Susanna was not withdrawn due to Mabel's connection to Taylor. Senate actually held its release until January 1923, in the hope that the Arbuckle and Taylor scandals would have blown over and he could remind audiences of the old Mabel, the fun-loving madcap whose minor rebellions were adorable rather than cause for alarm. But Susanna got largely negative reviews, in part because it was perceived to include too much drama in with the old slapstick. After Susanna, Mabel went to Europe and New York, where she hid out from the glare of the media and the investigation into Taylor's murder. But she wasn't gone for that long. In 1923, she starred in the Senate film The Extra Girl, a Hollywood satire which had Mabel squaring off versus a real-life lion. Senate said he wanted to portray a realistic story of a pilgrim who traveled to Hollywood with stars in her eyes, but didn't make it. The New York Times said he should have cast a younger actress as the wannabe, which, though ageist, seems like a fair critique. Even if Mabel looked younger than her 31 years, after a decade of fame and two years of infamy, who could buy her as a fresh-faced new arrival? It was while The Extra Girl was in release that a scandal which didn't make it into Hollywood Babylon or Stephen Norman's memoir occurred. This scandal arguably did as much to bring Mabel's career to an end as her partying, her sickness, or her association with William Desmond Taylor. In 1924, after a boozy afternoon party involving Mabel, actress Edna Proviance, and millionaire Cortland Dines, Dines was shot by Mabel's driver, who was known as Joe Kelly. Mabel had asked her chauffeur before the party to take her home once she got drunk. Once she did get drunk, the chauffeur tried to do what he had been told to do, 
but Mabel didn't want to leave the party. The driver and Dines got into it, and the chauffeur ended up shooting the millionaire, not fatally. But an investigation revealed that the driver was an ex-con who had escaped from a chain gang, and that the gun belonged to Mabel. For years at this point, Fatty Arbuckle's films had been removed from circulation, which meant the two dozen films Mabel had starred in with him had also disappeared. But after the Dine shooting, several states permanently banned all of Mabel's films, with the Attorney General of Ohio declaring, This film star has been entirely too closely connected with disgraceful shooting affairs. In the spring of 1924, Senate organized a publicity tour for Mabel to try to restore her bond with audiences. But by the time she arrived in Chicago for an appearance at a woman's club there, she discovered that she was no longer invited. The club now claimed the women of Chicago, quote, wished to see neither the actress in person nor on the screen. Senate had said he would stand by Mabel as long as the public continued to demand her films. That demand seemed to have disappeared. In order to get out of his contract with her, Senate told Mabel a vicious lie. That Will Hayes, newly arrived to create a self-censorship system within the film industry, had banned her movies. Hayes had not banned Mabel's movies, but unlike with Fatty Arbuckle, her fans were not clamoring to see them. She was not scapegoated like Arbuckle by the men who were desperate to hold on to their power, but she was a victim of the panic that had been created by the decisions those men made in the wake of all of the recent scandals. With Mabel, as with Arbuckle, there was a sense that the recklessness and gleeful bad behavior that audiences had wanted to see on screen now needed to be punished off screen. Her rep soon got worse. After she went to a hospital for an appendectomy, Mabel was named in an alienation of affection suit filed by the wife of a man who had also been a patient at the same hospital. Basically, before no-fault divorce became a thing, one half of a couple would have to sue the other for divorce, and if one spouse believed the other had been unfaithful, they could name people they believed the spouse had cheated with in a lawsuit. A Mrs. Georgia Church named Mabel amongst three other women in her suit. Mabel, who said she had never met the man in question, sued the wife for libel. There is a limit to all human endurance, and I have reached mine, Norman said. Her suit was dismissed, and she retreated again from Hollywood. She went to New York to star in a Broadway show, which was not the new lease on work life that Mabel had hoped. Mabel returned to Hollywood in 1926. She signed a contract with Hal Roach and made five short films for him. At this point, Mabel was looking thin and drawn 
and had lost a touch of the vivacity that had been her trademark. But when allowed, in the roach shorts, to do Keystone-style physical comedy, she still shined. In September 1926, Mabel married Lou Cody, an alcoholic actor who proposed in the midst of a wild party. The wedding was, in essence, a prank, and the marriage was not conventionally functional. By some reports, they never lived in the same house. Within a year, Mabel's tuberculosis worsened, and she was hospitalized. She had declined fast, in more ways than one. A newspaper article about her illness, published in early 1929, explained that Mabel was, quote, once popular as a screen star, because readers might have already forgotten. A year later, on February 23, 1930, Mabel died at the age of 37. Kenneth Anger pictures Mabel Normand as a cocaine addict whose drug addiction was revealed in the William Desmond Taylor murder scandal and caused the abrupt end to her career. As we've seen, the true story was more complicated, and the truth of her drug use may never be known. Next week, we will move on to a star who definitely had a drug addiction, and whose death was the last major scandal to emerge in the early 1920s, before the studios found a way to change the conversation. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our editors are Sam Dingman and Jacob Smith. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. Original music was composed for this season by Evan Viola. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. Special thanks to this week's special guest, Fred Savage, who read from Hollywood Babylon. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. There you'll find show notes for every episode, which include links to our sources. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. And if you are a fan of this podcast, perhaps you'll also like my new book. It's called Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom in Howard Hughes's Hollywood. It comes out on November 13th, but you can pre-order it now at Amazon.com or HarperCollins.com. We'll be back next week with an all-new tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. 
that science solves crimes. Forensic science is exciting, challenging, and most of all, rewarding work. But there is a shortage of qualified individuals in this field. Hi, I'm Terry with Loyola University, Maryland's Forensic Science Department. Loyola is one of the only colleges in the country offering advanced degrees in forensic pattern analysis and biological forensics. Our courses, taught by forensic experts, feature hands-on training and small class sizes. They are based on real crime scene and forensic examiner training programs to ensure you are ready to make a difference. Our programs are open to students from a variety of academic backgrounds because we believe everyone can contribute to solving crimes. So what are you waiting for? Discover the excitement of forensic science at Loyola University, Maryland. Visit loyola.edu forward slash forensic for more information. That's loyola.edu forward slash forensic because you are ready to make a difference. Join one of Loyola University, Maryland's forensic science programs today. Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment down payment tax and delivery may be required see store for details